This week, the worst kind of ghostly energy. Don't know what I mean? Get ready, it's gonna get strange. I, I don't remember if I featured this before. Maybe one of my number one fans you can tell me if I t- <laughs> please. If there's somebody out there who knows that much about these shows, you can stop. Really, I just <laughs> I don't I don't I don't want anybody to be obsessed with this podcast. I want you to just be a like a, a, I'm bored right now. I would like to hear about prison fun times again. You're about to find out. So I don't, I'm not sure if I've talked about this before. And if I haven't, I'm surprised. Because this location tops my list for places that just embody dark history and ghost stories. Now, I'm not going to dive too deep into the ghost stories of the location. I can feature this for future episodes. But I will kind of focus my efforts on one specific site inside of this abandoned prison oh i just let the cat out of the bag yes i'm going to be talking about west virginia penitentiary and if you haven't looked this place up if you haven't seen what it would look like if you haven't seen it on all of the ghost shows yes all of the ghost shows have done an episode at this place including the amazing paranormal state and ryan buell so this this is a location. I mean, this is a massive, amazing location, the old quote-unquote saved by ghosts, where historical building, because it has a ghostly and dark history, can now be used today for tours. It can be used for ghost hunts. You know, that's basically what this place is. It, it, it wouldn't exist, I believe, fully, that it would not exist anymore if it wasn't for the fact for the ghost phenomenon, which I don't think is ever going away. I believe this is still very popular. People love ghost stories, different types of experiences, along with the ghosts from, you know, your traditional jump scare haunted houses to your more spiritual ghost hunts to your ghost walks, which I know very intimately. So this location is saved by that. And boy, what a location it is. I'll dive into the history in a moment, but just let me just kind of describe the scene for you. Of course, you could look up the Google pictures, have a look yourself, which I highly recommend. But when you're actually standing on that street, the street in front of what would have been, if not for the hunts and the tours, an abandoned prison that just looks devastating, looks dark. I mean, you just look at it and you can feel the energy that's emanating from this place. And you're standing on that street, you got the massive administration building in front of you, the beautiful structure with the little, uh, the the middle uh, clock face at the top. And then if you turn around, you know what's behind you? One of the largest native burial mounds in all of North America. It might be the largest. I can't remember exactly, but I know it is definitely one of the largest. So if you don't know what a burial mound is, it's a hill. Think of like a landfill today. It looks like like a landfill, but instead of garbage, they're putting in bodies. Sorry, that might have been a terrible description, but it, it actually is. I think it fits it perfectly. So basically, you have this massive hill, and on the inside of the hill, you have uh, levels. So it's built up over the years. So the first level 
above ground is filled with skeletons. And then they add another level and another level and another level and another one and right up to the very top. And then at the top, I mean, depending how many, like it, it kind of goes in a bit of a pyramid shape and it's going to be multiple sections or floors of dead bodies that have been placed in it. So you had a group of natives. Uh, it's the Adena tribe, the Adena people. Sorry, I shouldn't say tribe because I don't think it's like the same type of natives when you think of Native Americans. Uh, this is this predates that. Uh, this goes back to get like 205, 250 BC. Like, just think about that. Because when you think of North America, you don't think of that kind of history. But, you know, there were people here. So it was the Adena people, A-D-E-N-A, who started building it. So it would have been started in 250 BC. So over 2,000 years ago. That's how old this thing is. I mentioned you turn around, you see that. And then you turn back around, you see this massive horrific abandoned prison with you know horror stories of violence that have gone in there which i'll cover a little bit in this episode and then of course ghosts like a very haunted place and i highly recommend a visit it's moundsville that's in west virginia and this would have been their main prison so uh, let me let me just give i'll give a little history around the construction of the prison so you can understand the West Virginia history is very unique in the sense that they were once part of Virginia, but then they, you know, purposely separated off. It was because of the Civil War. So you date back to the 1860s, the Civil War has just ended. West Virginia has separated off from Virginia. We're like, we don't need you guys anymore. A governor named Arthur Borman, he now realizes because he can't use the Virginia prison that he's going to need his own. So Virginia at this point is still angry that West Virginia wants to be its own state. So they're trying to bar the creation of the state. And one of the things that they do is they say, you can no longer use our government facilities anymore. And since the new state hasn't really set all this up, they now have to start to scramble. So to have the new state and you don't want lawlessness back in those days, you know, the old uh, gunfire in the street kind of thing. They needed to rush this, so a strong prison was needed. So you can you can see that like right from the start, they have to set a precedent. They have to say, okay, you're not going to be able to get away with any type of crime. And if by chance you know you do a crime and you get caught, you're going to end up in one of the worst potential situations that you could possibly be in. You know that's going to discourage you. Not saying it worked because you know this location was known for its pretty aggressive criminals but that was the idea they had uh, you know the idea at the beginning so anyway he goes forward he's like we need a prison uh the the other governors and whatever they say no um he then sets up there's a small jail structure in wheeling west virginia that's the capital but it was overcrowded almost immediately and then there's a, a point, there's like nine extremely dangerous criminals escape it in the middle of the night because it's so overcrowded. They can't, like they had no idea that they were gone. So because of this, because there's now nine dangerous criminals wandering around Wheeling in West Virginia, they're like, you know, this didn't need to happen. 
that's when all the governors had come together and they're like, well, remember Borman's idea? We're going to put in a prison that's going to discourage people. We're going to teach them a lesson. And that's exactly what they did. So it's resurrected and the new prison is finally approved. So they secure 10 acres in a small town known as Moundsville. Now, at the time, it's a small town. It's known for the great Grave Creek Mound that I just mentioned earlier. About 20 minute drive from Wheeling. So it's kind of perfect. They put up a temporary wooden building. A final design is created, and the design is done to convey a certain feeling. Now, I have talked about Mansfield Reformatory in Ohio in the past, and I said that when they created Mansfield, they were trying to give a feeling of reforming. It was a reformatory, so they want to reform the criminal to be a productive member of society. That's Mansfield, but West Virginia Penn is on the opposite end of the spectrum. They did that design. Again, look it up. I'll make it the thumbnail as well, so you'll see it in there. They did that design to convey strength, darkness, and hopelessness because they knew that uh, they, the inmates, they wanted to discourage people from creating doing the crime in the first place. And one way of doing this is by saying, if you end up in West Virginia Penitentiary, you're basically marching into hell. That's what they wanted to convey. I don't think that would ever fly today, but I can understand the thought process behind it. And I know it's it'd be something I, I don't think it really works. But, you know, because in, in, in the criminal world, you want to be tough, right? So you want others to think of you because your reputation means everything in the criminal world. Because if people are scared of you, you have less problems. You have less stresses because they'll just stay away from you. Or when they work with you, they'll fear you so much they won't double cross you. So that's the part that I think they're missing when they say, okay, we're going to make this the darkest and most hellish place on earth. Well, then if somebody can survive that, you know their street cred is going to go straight through the roof. And if their street cred is through the roof, then everybody's going to fear. It's like, you went to West Virginia Penitentiary? Well, I'm not going to screw with you, buddy. You're, you're uh, tough as nails. So I think it, it had the opposite effect. Now, they started uh, the building. It was the North Wagon Gate. If you look up the pictures, it actually is labeled. You can see the words North Wagon Gate over top of it. So, you know, that's the original building. It was uh, constructed from hand-cut sandstone in 1866. The north and south blocks were then built around it. And lastly, the very last thing that we built was the iconic administration tower in the middle. And again, that's the one with the battlement towers and the uh, circle. I, I'm not even sure if it's a clock face. I'm trying to look at it right now to see, but uh, there's like the circle uh, pendant or the little middle piece. It's not a clock face, sorry. It's a uh, West Virginia state stamp, which is actually really interesting. I just zoomed in on it. So it has these two fellas, these... Oh, that's a woman. Never mind. So it's a woman and a guy. Guy's holding either a pickaxe or some kind of ruler, which is weird. And there's an anvil behind him. Uh, there's a pumpkin in there, too. A couple guns. Makes sense. And also the date that West Virginia was founded, uh, June of 1863. And that's what's in the middle. So it's the state seal that's in the middle. And if you look up the images as well, you got the Wagon Gate. North Wagon Gate was the original building, which looks older. 
and the sandstone is white so it looks different than the rest of the structure but it's a very interesting building and design so the administration tower is put in the middle the administration area is where the warden's office is which is haunted uh, and the crown of the west virginia penitentiary and the entire structure was completed in 1876 now what's one of the reasons i i, I say it's a really dark place and lots of terrible things happened here. And I'm saying, okay, yeah, you got the unofficial stuff that was probably suppressed, not really reported of. I have no doubt that the prison guards tortured the inmates. This was actually uncovered in an article. Again, this will be future episodes. I'll probably talk about it then, just no time today. But the thing I'm going to focus on here is some of the energy will come from the executions that were on site now if you look at the picture of the north wagon gate it's got like the opening underneath it that's where the wagons and the back in the day and now cars can drive through to get to the parking lot in the back but it was also a location of hangings so we're talking about all types of executions that have been done on this site uh the two most important ones i guess the two official ones that we do fully know of are hangings and the electric chair. So they had the uh, electric chair in there. They called it Old Sparky. And the very cool thing about West Virginia Penn is that they still have Old Sparky. That if you were to go visit it, they have a museum on site and the actual chair that multiple inmates sat in for the very last time is on display. It's just like usually you go to these museums and it's just a replica, but this is the actual one. So there used to be a uh, small, like uh, a killing shack in the middle of the parking lot, which has since been taken down because after they outlawed executions in West Virginia, the inmates, they saw this building and it just disturbed them too much. So they demolished it. I say that's really a nice thing to do when you consider it. You know, it's almost like they weren't trying to torture the inmates at that point. It's like, okay, we're going to help you out here. We're going to take down this building that killed so many of your fellow inmates. And you don't have to look at it anymore. But when it was there, that's where old Sparky was uh, connected to the electricity of the bill. You know, in the movies, you see when they pull the switch and make the lights flicker and dim. That happened inside West Virginia Penitentiary. So I can understand the hopelessness that the inmates must have felt especially those on death row when one of their fellow inmates who they knew personally in some regards uh, bit the dust. So that kill shack was removed, but the North Wagon Gate, I guess because it was so much time has passed since the hangings, nobody really cared about that. Now I've gone over the stories of the people who were hanged in the North Wagon Gate and it just amazes me. And one of the ones, I wanted to feature one for you so that you can hear it firsthand. And it happened to a man named Frank Heyer, H-Y-E-R, if you want to look him up. This was June of 1931, and he's going to be hanged for killing his wife. Now, if you would have seen him before his execution, you would have been shocked. Somebody who's about to be hanged by the neck until dead you would immediately assume that they'd be in a nervous state, that they'd be scared and shaking. He was the opposite. He was actually happy. He was jovial. He was joking with the guards and the priests. 
Now, they were the ones who surrounded him uh, before that. And uh, he was just talking up a storm about stuff. And he he turned to the priest and he thanked him oh, for giving him a wonderful Christian experience because he wasn't a Christian before. And now he is. He's found God, which is probably the reason why he was so happy, because he was about to go meet his creator. He'd confessed to the murder over and over again. And in the end, his reason for murdering his wife was, quote unquote, whiskey caused it. And he even said, I said, I wanted to commit suicide, but it was the church that brought me back to life, realized that I could be a good man, all thanks to the church. And then the time finally comes, they dress Frank up, ready for his hanging, and they walk him out. And as they're walking him out, he says something uh, very interesting. You see the mindset of the guy. He's kind of lost it in a way, but he turns to the priest and says, quote, Meet me in heaven, and when you preach, Father, tell young man to leave whiskey alone. So again, he, you know, it's just a mindset. He doesn't blame himself for killing his wife. He believes it was the alcohol that made him do it. And I, I personally can't really talk about this. I don't know if you know this about me. I don't think I've ever mentioned that, but I've never been drunk in my life. And don't think this as a, as a call out for somebody to take up arms and, and try and make me drunk one day. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not open to it. I've been severely buzzed, but never fully drunk. So I couldn't possibly say from my own personal experience that if I was truly drunk, would I murder my wife? Hopefully she didn't hear that part. But if I was fully drunk, would I murder my wife? And I'd say no. I'm going to say no. I say if, I would hope I was a happy drunk not a murderous drunk, because I think the alcohol really just brings up your internal feelings, the stuff that you suppress over the years. Like if you are a very angry person, you have a lot of anger on the inside, that if you get drunk, you're going to be an angry person on the outside. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I believe alcohol will do. So for him to then say, oh yeah, tell the young men to leave the whiskey alone, that's just so disrespectful, especially to his wife's legacy, his wife's memory. To say that, oh, it wasn't me, it was the whiskey. So, I mean, it's like, uh, you don't feel too sorry for this guy and what's about to happen to him. So they walk him over to the gallows. They have to walk up some stairs to the top. There's a trap door underneath. And I believe the body falls through if it's the middle of the North Wagon Gate. It would be centered on that. So they uh, put the noose around his neck. The reverend then says a prayer. And at the end, he asks Frank for his final words. And Frank never a loss for words, he says. And please understand that the, the original one was very long. So I edited it down to just a couple of sentences here. So he says, I'm guilty. I am perfectly willing to shed my blood for this crime. Jesus has saved my soul. I am not afraid to die. It's just so, <laughs> so self-involved. It's insane. But I'm sure nobody's really calling him because he's about to get hanged. So once he's done talking, the trap door opens. Frank falls through, but something wasn't right. Because when it, it jerks, the pressure was too much. The rope squeezed Frank's neck with a really hard jerk, slicing completely through and ripping the head off his body. Oh, sorry, uh, warning, it's about to get violent. <laughs> Just, so I assume you're listening, you, you kind of expect this. So it took his head right off. It sliced it right off blood splattering everywhere 
Now, witnesses were already uh, soured on the idea of public hangings, and they didn't really know all the stuff behind the scenes. They knew he murdered his wife, uh, but they didn't realize, you know, the way he was approaching everything. Uh, but even if they knew that, I'm sure this would have still disturbed them to the point of stating, we don't want these anymore. So this is what sealed the end of public hangings in West Virginia. That's, that's how Frank Heyer's death led to the unofficial end. Because uh, then hangings, uh, they were technically still done for about 18 years, give or take. Uh, and then they stopped in 1949, but I doubt there was a lot of them. I'm not 100% how many. So they stopped the hangings in 1949. You're thinking, okay, they've come around. They're not going to be as violent anymore. No, that's when old Sparky comes in. So now you have the electric chair, uh, which was built by an inmate. Can you believe this? They actually, because they, I guess it's cheap labor or free labor, they got an inmate named Paul Glenn. He's the guy who built the electric chair to kill his fellow inmates. I don't know if he didn't like him or something or if he's just forced to do it. But when old Sparky was put in place, um, it would last about 10 years, which is less than you would think. But in 10 years, I guess they were very efficient. They were able to get nine men into that chair. So old Sparky ended the lives of nine men. The last execution was that of Elmer Bruner in 1959. Uh, he was executed two years after breaking into the house of a 58-year-old woman named Ruby Miller, and he killed her with a claw hammer. So uh, the, the Sparky ends in 1959, and then it's only six more years after that that West Virginia completely abolishes the death penalty. So all of this violence and death leads to that final end in 1965 when they got rid of it completely. And you're thinking, oh, 1965, that's so soon. Well, please keep in mind that uh, Canada, if you're from my own home area of Canada, like uh, I'm in Hamilton near Toronto and Niagara Falls, uh, Toronto had hangings, not public hangings, but hangings up until the 1960s as well. So, I mean, we're not far off of that. So if you're a Canadian thinking, oh, look at how much better we are because we ended the death penalty earlier, you'd be wrong. In fact, we didn't even have the electric chair. We were still hanging people. And to be the last one, one of the last ones in the Don Jail, almost decapitated the guy too. So the 1960s was a big time for executions to be stopped. That's good for people being executed, but not good for people like me who tell these stories. Sorry, I'm dark. What can I say? So let's just round off West Virginia Penitentiary now. I want to talk about that one specific location but just to give you an idea of the darkness that's gone into this prison over the years, here's a quote from one of the websites. During its operation, there were 36 reported murders and 94 executions. That's over 100. And this does not take into account the suicides and accidents, accidents, quote unquote, uh, which take a total number of deaths they believe to nearly 1,000. So when I say that West Virginia Penitentiary has a history that reads like a horror movie script. I'm not joking about this. You can just totally imagine, like from the murders and the executions alone, you know, what kind of energy would be inside of this place. But then taking the suicides and the accidents over the years, I'm telling you, I mean, it's just like a dark cloud hanging over top of it. 
just to makes the place like that much more interesting for the ghost hunts. So if a ghost hunter goes to West Virginia, uh, sorry, goes to Mansfield Reformatory, and the energy in there is much less, even though it is more creepy looking, but consider that so many less people died inside the space. There wasn't tortures. There wasn't executions there. It's not going to have the same type of energy. So I say West Virginia is not as big as Mansfield, so you're not going to have the same uh, cool experience, but it is going to have a certain type of energy to it. Because only in places where there's been wars that have taken place, that these numbers of deaths that have occurred over the years, well, they hang that dark cloud over the space. So many of the areas inside the prison have a certain energy to it, have ghosts attached to it. I mean, when you have some energy, other energy easily takes hold. So when people die inside the space, it just adds to the pile, eventually building it up like a candle, or even in this case, a massive fire to the other side. Now I'm going to focus my energy, as promised, on an area of the building known as, quote unquote, the sugar shack. Sugar, like sweet sugar. Now there's a reason it's called this, and I'm going to be careful how I say this. You know what, I'm just I'm going to give a warning. I'm just going to speak freely. You guys expect me to speak freely, so I'm going to warn you now. I'm going to be talking about prison rape. So that's uh, just that's that's it. We've ripped the Band-Aid off. Let's just get into it. So the sugar shack is where the inmates would go for some sugar. Sugar. And it's not candy. It's what I said before. So the space was known for rapes, known for much violence. If the inmates had a score to settle, that's where they would go because there was very little supervision by the guards. This was kind of an area that they could feel free to do whatever they want. But for this reason, fights break out, violence is done, men died in the space. Now, the stronger inmates, of course, were the ones who kind of ran the floor. The weaker inmates, they were the ones that were most fearful. They were constantly preyed upon. They're beaten and raped in that space. And uh, today, that's um, one of the experiences that men have when they go into the sugar shack is that they feel anxiety and they feel dread. And we believe that it's left over from residual energy of the inmates who had the worst problems inside that space. Now, technically, they say nobody was killed in the space, even though they say also say men died. So my guess is fights probably led to people dying eventually. I assume I'm just trying to use logic to figure that one out. So no one was killed on the space, but that they died afterwards. So the violence happened in the space. Uh, And then they're taken wherever the infirmary and that's where they died. That's my assumption. But all the other stuff did definitely happen in there. So some of the energy that hangs over the space, it's not as, you know, extreme as the rest of the building. But visitors have reported hearing cries when they're down in one of the rooms. I believe there's two sections to the sugar shacks, like a very large space. And they also hear footsteps when they know that they're down there by themselves or their entire group is around them, so nobody's moving. Several occasions as well, visitors have reported being physically assaulted. So people down there, they can, you know, be hit in the arm, they can be pushed from behind, which is usually a sign of some type of quote-unquote poltergeist, some type of restless energy that is having trouble moving on. 
they might cause this, physically assaulting people. Now, when you say physically assaulting, it's not like taking a punch from Conor McGregor or uh, Floyd Mayweather. It's not like that. Uh, When I say physically assaulted, it's more like you just feel it. Nobody's going to get a bruised face from a punch from a ghost because usually they just don't have the energy to really affect the physical living in that way. So when I say physically assaulted, you might be pushed, you might be tapped, you might have your hair pulled. These are the most common. Now, sometimes they also hear men arguing in the distance, yelling or terrifying whispers coming from empty rooms. And I couldn't find an example of this, but I do remember because I've been to West Virginia a couple times to see the prison, uh, stayed there overnight once. And I do remember that a story was conveyed to us about a man who visited the building. He went down into the sugar shack and he was by himself, just wanted to get a feel for the space like a ghost hunter, wanted to see if anything would happen, didn't want anybody contaminating the space. And he's standing in the one room. He says he hears a whisper coming from the wall. So he goes up to the wall and he listens. He can hear somebody talking from the other end. And his first thought was that there was another visitor who snuck down. It was playing a joke on him. You know, it's funny. He's like, you try and rationalize these situations when they're happening. So his first thought is like, somebody's paying a joke on me. But he immediately disproves that because he quickly runs into the only other room there and there's nobody. So he runs to the other side of the wall. He's listening. He heard the whispers as clear as day. And when he runs in the other room, there's nobody there. He's alone. So this is that residual energy coming. I'm sure they could, you know, whisper back and forth through the walls, you know, either threatening them or setting up some uh, fun times. And he just picked up on what happened in the past. Now, again, it's not the most massively haunted location in the prison. I'll talk about that again in future episodes. But for now, I do have some quotes. It's one of the things I like to do. I like to look at the website, see if anybody, you know, in their reviews or in uh, comments, if they've said anything about experiences that they had in the space. And I found uh, a couple of them here. The first one is from a woman named Brenda Smith. Quote, My husband had a static feeling, and my my son's phone disappeared from his backpack in the sugar shack on an all-night tour. We searched three times for it, but when we got home, we found it in the backpack in a different compartment but all was searched before we left. See, the ability for a spirit to move a physical object, I've heard many times before. I've never been a huge believer in that because I just don't see it as being overly possible, especially with something as heavy as a phone. But it does happen so many times that you got to kind of say, okay, maybe there's something to it. I mean, stories from trusted people over the years have been told to me, and I've always said, okay, there might be something to that. And this one seems to have all originated from the sugar shack. Another quote here from a woman named Tara McFeely. Quote, I was in the sugar shack. My school went there for our eighth grade field trip. So she's just a kid. Uh, This was back in 1998. When she stepped foot in the sugar shack, she felt something evil was in there. And she had to immediately leave. Unquote. Now you might be thinking, okay, yeah, this is uh, a little general. When I hear these stories, I always have like a ton of questions flowing through my head. I wish I could actually talk to Tara McFeely and ask her about that. But unfortunately, it's only a quote. Can't really do that. But I mean, that, that, that is legit. 
if you felt fine a moment ago, I'd ask, you know, did you know the stories before you went into the sugar shack? Did you know what space you were stepping into? The answer is probably yes. But to feel something evil and immediately have to walk out and taking the risk of being made fun of by your friends, I mean, that says something. So, I mean, yeah, feeling anxiety and dread. This is a woman saying that, but I say the men have reported more about feeling those feelings when they were down there for obvious reasons. And I got to final one here was from a uh, paranormal group called Gem City, G-E-M. Quote, it was pretty crazy. Lots of movement, footsteps, and noises we couldn't figure out where or what it was. Now, this has happened while they were investigating the space. So they probably had, I assume, exclusive access to it. They would have controlled the space made sure nobody was making noises in the distance, and yet they were hearing stuff, you know, trying to stir the energy up, and they were still hearing stuff. So as I said, it's not the most over-the-top haunted spot, but it doesn't represent the entire prison because there's other spaces where violence and terrible things that occurred, other spaces that are, you know, very deeply haunted from what happened in there. And as I mentioned, I'm sure I'll come back to this, eventually in the future now as a last thing before i end the show i just want to do a call out if anybody's listening at this point if you're a paranormal investigator if you're a person who has your own personal stories i don't care where you're from i just want to hear ghost stories i want to talk to people who believe who've had experiences over the years something's following you around or it's just random i don't really care i'm going to start doing interviews again I have a close friend of mine. He recommended this as uh, something to try out. I definitely wanted, I wanted to do it for a very long time. I think it's time I finally dive into it. I, I hope I can be a decent interviewer. But I just want to start drawing these stories out from people instead of just me talking the entire time. Who knows, you might be sick of my voice anyway. So we're going to go down that road. If you do have stories you want to tell, you want to come on the show as a guest, please let me know. I'll give you my email address. It's ggdaniel at ghostwalks.com. GG, like ghost guide, Daniel at ghostwalks.com. Send me your information and we'll see about making an interview happen. I will start out doing them uh, maybe once every two weeks or so. And then if they do well, I'll, I'll start to increase that and we'll see where it goes. Anyway, that's the show. If you're enjoying Ghostly History, you can support us by just simply leaving a review. Doesn't matter how you listen, just leave a review wherever you do. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next week.